Listen here, you unwholesome little heathen maggot. All of life is but a stage, and we the players. Have you ever spoken with a narcotics counsellor before? You and your bloods tested positive for methamphetamine. It's a narcotic substance. I don't use drugs. Well, firstly, you've come down off meth, so just be glad you're not having cravings for another hit. You are craving, aren't you? No, Dad. I'm an adult. Do you understand? I'm entitled to my own opinions, my own choices, my own beliefs. Entitled is exactly the word I would choose. It doesn't quite gel with my born-again nihilism. Nihilism is not the absence of God, Ewan. You have to seek God and me. You're up to your eyeballs in methamphetamines. Even if you weren't jelly brain from the drugs, it's just a matter of time before you die from the AIDS. Dad! Why did you die for the sinners? Allow non-sinners to perish for you. I get my strength by turning to God, not by turning away from him. Dad, I'm not Jesus. I'm not going to be rising up after this. Forget my face. <laughs> but responsibility without freedom is slavery. Well, freedom without responsibility is anarchy. And look where that gets you. The word allegedly has gotten stuck to my name. Ewan Morris allegedly murdered a man in cold blood. Ewan Morris allegedly entered unlawfully with intent to steal. You're not behaving much like an adult, you know. At least I'm not behaving like a racist bigot. Nice shiner, Linda. Fizzle's just given a more reason to wear a burqa. Without a response, you're nothing more than a mental illness lord. You know what Australia needs? More black. More lab. More Asian! One way or another, this is going up my arm today. God was with you, son. He watches over you, he protects you, and I've got your back. Look at that, I wanted to bring some bottled water, but it turns to scotch. Guess Jesus really is working his magic on me. That's the trailer for the very impressive Australian independent film, The Blood of God. Hello, and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by The Blood of God director Dave O'Hardy and lead actor Richard Littlehouse, who discuss their new film, which explores the distinction between faith and religion amid an assortment of frayed relationships brought on by a devout Christian man, Ewan, played by Richard, who contracts a life-altering illness, forms a drug dependency and becomes the key suspect in a murder investigation. This character is really put through the ringer in this film. Uh, The Blood of God is currently enjoying a limited release in Sydney uh, before a potential wider release around the country. Uh, But you can head over to cinemaaustralia.com.au to find out where you can see it and uh, further details about the film. Anyway, enjoy. He does have a conscience in some way, but he's kind of like a uh, just a, a madman who can out-drink, out-last, out-fun out everyone all the time. Luke's interpretation of that was uh, probably more extreme than what I had written on the page or envisaged myself. The day that we were going out to shoot the open water scenes, we were told that there were some dead whale carcasses that were bringing in real tiger sharks and great white sharks, and they'd been sighted in the area. We were told not to go in the water. 
but I could just see instantly that how talented Rhiannon was and there was just it really blew me away. There is still a bit of a, a boys club out there for sure. And also with Dee Wallace, she gave me great input on the script for this to make her have a very pro-choice stance throughout the film. And the simple fact is, the movie, the whole thing occurs because a right-wing guy blows up a clinic. Very organically, somehow, the name The Comet Kids popped up. And we sort of just kind of based the movie around that name. Like, it happened really quickly. We kind of thought, like, that's a really great name for a movie. Like, what is, what, who are The Comet Kids? We just thought it was very, very important to uh, start writing more roles for women and uh, women not just, as I said, as girlfriends, mothers and people in love, but women who are their own people as we are. <laughs> Davo and uh, Richard, uh, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to have you both as guests. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, a few weeks ago, I wrote an article announcing uh, the limited cinema release of The Blood of God, and I mentioned in the first line that you, Davo, were one of the hardest working independent <laughs> filmmakers in Australia. I mean, you're pumping out film after film and you're showing no signs of slowing down uh, with your next film already announced. Um, That's true, yes. <laughs> your work ethic, your determination, your dedication is inspiring. So I just wanted to start off by saying congratulations on, on a fantastic career so far. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's uh, quite a long gap between uh, when you have the idea and when it comes to fruition that along the way, um, the thank yous that you get can be quite um, separated. Mm. But when you get them from uh, people all at once, it can be very uh, beneficial as well. Uh, I'm onto my fifth feature now, as you've said. It's kind of in development. And five years ago, I was making my first feature film. So it's it is quite a, a, a steady and rapidly steady um, output. But um, I think that's also is what's keeping me humble is that I'm not getting a swelled head as to those numbers. I'm just so inspired and so driven to make film that my head's always down on one product or another that um, the, the spoils of that hard work are for me yet to come. Mm. Um, which is in its own way a double-edged sword because I'm not always able to be quite so present with the release of the present one and I'm not always able to appreciate the hard work that's finally paying off when my mind's on the next one. So mm-hmm. that in itself is a, a um, internal struggle that uh, a, a, an artist who is so full of ideas needs to cope with and I think that first line of that article really pulled that into perspective for me where, I don't know, um, I wouldn't mind having a bit more of a gap between films. <laughs> uh, but I thought, but even the thought of doing that fills me with fear because I have so much to do and I'm so driven to do it all that it's such a intricate mix of working hard but also enjoying that hard work being a product I can sit back and enjoy with other people who were a part of it. So... Um, I I really do appreciate being seen as one of the hardest working directors or filmmakers in the country, and I hope to continue to still be, but still be present enough to enjoy the work myself. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So where does this drive come from for you? 
it's just an inbuilt thing. I uh, really enjoy telling stories, and when I, I have something which I've experienced or see someone else experience, um, that really feeds into just the empathy and the uh, the view of people coming through something which uh, builds them, develops them, inspires them. And I have the medium as a filmmaker to uh, perpetuate that. So the, the drive really comes from seeing a story unfold and propelling that to encourage and educate other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I quite often uh, begin these podcasts by getting our guests to take us back to the beginning of their careers. So, Dave, I'll start with you. Where does your love of film and, and filmmaking come from? I think the earliest I can remember would be um, it was in the late 90s when a film came out about a big ship sinking. You may have heard of it. Um, <laughs> what was that one called? I can't recall. <laughs> it may have been Titanic, not too sure. But um, I knew from, from, from the time that my parents had a video camera, a, a small JVC camcorder thing, which was a wedding present to them, and I asked to borrow it. I was about eight, nine years old at the time. And so with this little model I had, I made this, you know, sort of in the in the – bedroom, bathroom kind of thing, you know, um, uh, uh, homage film, if you will. And um, it was very cute. My my parents thought it was a very um, uh, cute hobby and I was able to screen my short film uh, to the class at school and everything. It was all all very wholesome until, as happens, there was water involved. And everyone said to me, Davo, do not put the camera anywhere near water. It will destroy it. And me being an eight-year-old boy, was like, I'll show you. Oh, no. So I destroyed the camera. And that was uh, I, I was I, I was forbidden to ever have a camera ever again. So when I finally got my hands on one years later, it was from a neighbor's garage sale, and it only ran off of AC power off, off the wall socket. There was no battery component anymore. <laughs> so I would take this camera down the street on a three hundred meter long extension cord, and um, that was my. Uh, Experience firsthand of making a film, camera angles, apertures, focal lengths, that kind of thing. And my parents just thought, well, he'll be a filmmaker one way or another because no matter what kind of garbage we give him, he always finds his way to um, make his films with whatever (laughs) he has. So I think from that point on, I just knew that one way or another, I'm going to be doing this. And um, thankfully, these days, it's a lot easier and equipment's a lot better. But um, those humble beginnings always make me remember just how inbuilt it is for me. Oh, wow. Uh, it's always fascinating to hear about that kind of stuff. Uh, Richard, this is your second feature film role and uh, your first time as the lead. Where did it all start for you? Uh, well, very similar, actually. Um, I've always known that I've wanted to be on the stage. Um, I did dancing and uh, for a couple of years when I was about four or five. My parents tried to get me into doing sport and I just hated it completely. Uh, so they just got me into doing dancing. I just loved being on the stage. Mm. And probably when I was about six or seven, I had my first 30-minute acting class. And within those 30 minutes, I came out of it saying to my parents, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing when I grow up. It's mm. acting. Um, I've just always enjoyed the the stories. Um, similarly to Devo, I the stories that people – know everyone has their own story and I'd love the opportunity to portray those stories that aren't my own mm-hmm. um and also just having a laugh um I think one of my earliest memories of performing for a crowd was in a skiing trip when I was about six I hadn't met any of these people before I was wearing like a handmade cape 
uh, I jumped up onto a table, stood on one leg and said to everyone, my name is Richard and I am a bird. <laughs> um, so that, that was not the introduction to me acting. Um, I had already been doing it probably for about half a year by that point, mm. but I, I've always enjoyed performing and escaping, I suppose, my own life to portray someone else's. So have you always wanted to make film? It sounds like uh, you had a real interest in theatre as well. Uh, theatre, yeah, primarily, um, but any acting really. Mm. Uh, I did primarily do theatre from uh, during high school. I was in a yearly production. I uh, got to perform at a professional theatre in years 7 through to 12, which was fantastic. Uh, and basically wherever the story was, uh, I never really pursued act uh, theatre or film Specifically, uh, just wherever the role was at the time, uh, which for the last couple of years, it's primarily been in the film, doing a couple of short films uh, for the Actors College of Theatre and Television, um, and now with Davo as well, and we've got the next one coming up, hopefully. So I've moved from doing theatre into film, but wherever the role really is. Right, right. That's where you'll be headed. Um, yeah. uh, uh, Davo... Was the first film that you, the first set that you stepped foot on, was that your own film or, or did you have any experience uh, prior to making your own films? Well, let's just um, make clear what set you mean because we could talk about that one I made when I was eight. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we could talk about um, when I first you know, saw a film set or when I was first involved in making a film. So let's let's be specific. Let, let's talk about the first time you saw the set then because that sounds intriguing. I'd like to know what that one was. Oh, um, I, I'm originally uh, a Wollongong boy mm. and down that way there's not a lot of film opportunity. At least that wasn't when I was there. Mm. Um and there was a uh, small production um, up the road called, uh, was it? I think it was called First War for the West. It was um, like a Romanesque kind of thing. It was shot all on green screen. Wow. Um, and we were in these, um, I guess if it was a Western film, it'd be called a Spaghetti Western, where like, you know, everyone's in like, you know, a, 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 a Cobras and stuff. So it we were in uh, glorified bedsheets and sandals from Kmart. So it was a very, you know, indie film. Um, and then around the same time, there was a, um, a, 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 what was it? An artsy Nazi film right. <laughs> called The Girl Who Lived about a, um, a survivor of the uh, concentration camps shot in the same location. That was the first time I saw a film set, and I was only there as an extra, but uh, it was just the only thing I can remember of that's, that big thing on a stick is a, a, a microphone. It's called a boom mic, that kind of thing, and just seeing these things actually in, in front of my eyes. Did it feed your hunger to, to want to go out and make movies? Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like sugar. You know, you have, yeah. you have a, 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 a little piece of it and then it's just you want to have it all in one big mouthful. Um, I was on a film, uh, Convict, with David Field when oh, I was yeah. about 22. Yeah. I was I was um, credited at first as David. <sighs> but I was I, I was the best boy on that, which I've now come to learn is the, um, is the lowest of the low jobs. But it was still a job. It was still a credit. Um and that film was a very brutal um, prison drama, so mm. it was uh, not an easy three weeks of shooting. Mm. But it was very good to see um, that level of filmmaking and to be a part of it. 
And it was only a few years after that I actually thought, I'm going to make my own feature. So with the beauty of hindsight, it's a beautiful little uh, tapestry of experience. But at the time, every experience was, at the time, the new greatest thing. Yes, yeah, there's nothing quite like being on a, on a film set. Um, Richard, you worked on two of Davo's previous films. You worked uh, on the special effects for Hunting for Shadows and as a production assistant on A Silent Agreement. Uh, can, you tell us, yeah. uh, can you tell us how and when you first met Davo and, uh, and your working relationship with him so far? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> here, we, here we go. Here we go. Yep. Um, well, technically, when I first met Devo, uh, it was early 2015, I believe. Um, we had both gone to uh, Crash Test Drama, uh, which is basically uh, – I've got to how to explain that. Uh, it's a, a night where people, you know, first-time directors, first-time actors, just a group of people, you audition on the spot, you get – you get cast, you rehearse for 90 minutes, you put the show on, uh, all short 10-minute plays, so it's nothing too major. Uh, so that's when we first met. I, for lack of a better word, brushed him off uh, for 12 months, not having any interest in working with him or being with him at all. Wow, harsh. Uh, so I needed him for a play of my own that I was directing for Short and Sweet, uh, the Short and Sweet Theatre Festival in Sydney. Uh, that's when we he was starting to film Hunting the Shadows, uh, probably about towards the end of the production of Hunting the Shadows. We were in a relationship by then, and I'm just trying to think, what did I do for Hunting the Shadows? <laughs> it's, uh, you're credited as a uh, as a um, uh, working on the special effects. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, so I was the Quinken, the evil sinister monster of the film uh so i was painted all in black uh black paint from head to toe uh and through the use of camera angles like low camera angles just to make me appear bigger because i'm only five foot four so that isn't a very big scary monster um so that is what i did on hunting for shadows it was an unusual first feature film experience um (laughs) But it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then with the silent agreement uh, a year later, I was actually in the in the States uh, on a gap year of sorts for 12 months. So I didn't have as much involvement, uh, direct involvement in the film, but I was you know, chatting with Davo every week, just going through the motions of what had been filmed, the editing process and such as well. Wow. So, so describe Davo Hardy for us, the director. Passionate. Uh, patient and knows what he wants. Uh, obviously, with four feature films in four years and various shorts for the years before, he's been a filmmaker for probably gone on a decade, more than 12 years now. Uh, so he knows, he's no, he definitely knows his craft. Um, but he's also there to have a good time which is very helpful. I've worked with a lot of directors where it was all business. You know, we have an hour to shoot this scene. If we go over an hour, or if we don't have it, we don't have it. Uh, But working with Devo was great. If we needed to reshoot something, we would because the final product shows. Like, it needs to be perfect for the final product. 
Um, Davo, I want to talk uh, about a silent agreement for a moment. Uh, this is the first Australian feature film to showcase Auslan or Australian Sign Language. Uh, this isn't your first film to include deaf characters. Can can you talk about that and, and tell us why that is? I think um, my own life has had a pretty thick thread of uh, people who have um, either speech impediments or hearing impediments or just a disability of some description because I've worked in, in the industry, I've had friends who have all sorts of different conditions, and I've just found the humanity in it to be such a source of inspiration. Mm. Um, my own experience with sign language was uh, to um, assist my own stutter, which as is in the film, um, I, I was once told by a uh, film mentor, colleague, friend, I could not be a film director because I have a stutter. And I was at film school at the time. I was 20 years old, very impressionable. And I was on, on scholarship. So when I was explaining that I was on scholarship, I, the the message I was getting back was almost, why did they bother when you won't make any use of it because you have the, the, the stammer? And that made such an impression on me that that same defiant, I'll show you, that, that eight-year-old me put the camera in the bathtub, was I'm going to make a career because I don't believe that saying um, cut and action and doing my job, whether I stutter or not, is indicative of this person's opinion. Mm. So when I made a silent agreement, it was as much of a personal catharsis as it was a, um, a, a spotlight on the deaf community, on... Um, how a disability can be an asset, or, or, or all those different elements of it. And I think that's what I'm finding to be most helpful in my filmmaking now is not a, not, not just a, a personal demon exorcism, but a what has affected me personally and how can I bring that into a storytelling um, element so that it will impact strangers mm. and they will feel either that they've seen a part of my psyche or um, have experience similar to that which I've had, but in a much more condensed time period. Mm. What a great outlook. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, uh, a Silent Agreement uh, featured uh, Paul Mercurio. He's quite a high-profile high uh, Australian actor and dancer. Um, and, and Paul's a great guy. I mean, he's, he's lovely, and Paul and I keep in contact, actually. We, we, we speak regularly. And uh, I spoke with him this morning. And he speaks very highly of you, Davo, and he actually said that he believes you're going to become one of this country's most important filmmakers. Um, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot here, but I asked him if he had any anecdotes that he'd like to share about his time working with you. And um, without elaborating, he told me to ask you if you've learnt your lesson about dumping your SD cards at the right time. Is this something you're willing to elaborate <laughs> on and, and what Paul means by that? I think, I mean, I, I, I can't on the spot uh, remember a specific uh, uh, incident, but I, I I know that personally, um, I can get so in the moment of making a film that I might delay um, data dumping or or um, uh, data wrangling, that they call it, mm. and suddenly I have so many SD cards full of material which will take hours to transfer, and suddenly we're all on break. And what do we do for the next scene? Well, we can't shoot it for an hour because everything has, has to dump first. Did you and start shooting the, 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 that particular scene or what was the scene? Oh, I remember that we were, um, yeah, I, I remember it now. We were definitely on a scene with, with Paul. It was, it was a long day. I think it was one of those uh, days where we were just shooting the arguments. So there was a lot of energy, a lot of exhaustion, and we had to keep hitting the same uh, fever pitch of, of anger every time. Mm. 
and you know a, a lot of coverage of those scenes. And just during the break, I just w- went away for five minutes with one of the um, crew members who was white faced, like they've got a problem. So I, I I I went with them, and they told me what was going on. And I said, "Well, this." 10-minute break is going to be an hour long because we're going to do some data dumping. And just, I think the look on Paul's face was the first time I ever saw him really angry. So <laughs> it was good for the scene, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine Paul being the kind of guy that gets uh, angry often. Well, as you said, he's a, he's a lovely guy. I mm. love Paul and mm. I work with him again and he worked with me, I'm sure. Mm. Um, but I think uh, that was the first time that th- 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 there was a, a an issue on set, so to speak. And um, first time I ever dropped the, per- the, the, the proverbial ball of being um, a constant professional. But um, even now on on uh, Hunting Fish uh, no, and on, on uh, Lives We Lead and on um, The Blood of God, there's always some mishap somewhere on a production which just makes the whole thing um human mm. and we all um don't dwell on them but we do learn from them yes yeah so, so here we are with the blood of god and uh, and richard you play the main character in the film can you tell us what it's about from from your character's perspective uh so you and morris uh he's a 19 year old boy he's very clean cut uh good christian boy he goes to church with his father every Sunday, you know, says grace at all evening meals, uh, loves music, uh, which is something that connects uh, with me personally as well. I've been playing piano since I was about five years old. Uh, my mum teaches piano. She taught me and my brother. So he has these two amazing things in his life. He has faith, his faith, religion, and his music. And in the church that he goes to, he meets a friend of some sorts uh, who is more or less the complete opposite of you. And he does drugs, he drinks, he smokes. Uh, he's completely the wrong person that my father, uh, Ted, doesn't want me involved with at all. Uh, but I'm very much of the opinion, you know, I can change him. I can steer him to the correct light. And that's uh, the dynamic between uh Ewan and Ted, and then Ewan and Mitchell, my friend, uh, in the at the beginning of the film, which drives into I have an argument uh, with Ted with my father about about that really, uh, about you know my attempts to help Mitchell in his time of need, and he disagrees. Ted disagrees with me completely, so I, in defiance, uh, ignore my father's protests and just walks off with Mitchell. He gets me smoking, uh, takes me to a good time girl for my first time, (laughs) which is always fun to shoot. Um, I then, I go through a lot of personal trauma. Mm. Um, Just trying to remember what's not spoiling the film for everyone. (laughs) Uh, So I, I get beaten up. Uh, at my place of work and thrown into a dumpster where I'm landing, where I land on a pile of used needles. So I get a drug addiction and HIV. So from that point on, it's about my coming to grips with, you know, how do I live this healthy life that I've lived so far when I'm now tainted? Mm -hmm. Uh, And my faith in humanity and in God it's, uh, itself is 
tainted and tortured. Mm. And I'm trying to think of the adjective. I can't think of the adjective. <laughs> um, so it, it's torn and I start questioning my own beliefs as a Christian and as a human. Uh, and by the end, what pulls me through is my relationship with my father because even though he's tough on me as fathers often are, he gets me through it and we're not perfect by the end. We're not as happy as we are at the beginning, but it's a real good tale, like a happy tale about like a father and son dynamic. Mm-hmm. Your character is put through the absolute ringer in this film. I mean, yes. I don't want yeah. to, I don't want to presume anything, but I suspect this character is quite removed from your everyday life personally. Um, tell us about your research into this character and how you went about uh, bringing such a damaged person to life. Oh, geez. Uh, well, yes, he is very removed. Uh, obviously, when before, uh, researching for a role and preparing for a role, you need to find that way that you do connect with the character because mm. uh, otherwise you it shows when you are complete, re- completely removed. Uh, so one of my old uh, ex-friends, and I do mean that by ex completely, uh, he was going through a lot of similar things growing up. Uh, we known each other since we were about six or seven. We lived in the same street. We had very similar interests. We saw each other every day for uh, about seven or eight years. Uh, In high school, we sort of started falling apart because he did start smoking. Uh, And at the time, I was really against it. And it's like, we can't be friends. He tried to stop for me. We came back. Then he started drinking doing all sorts, doing drugs. I'm like, I'm sorry, we just, this isn't working for me. So we did split off and we came back uh, about four years later when we were both 18 uh, and, you know, we reconnected a lot, which was great. And he was just telling me all about his last four years about having drug debts and, you know, having sex with a lot of people and not knowing if, if he had caught any diseases, and I think that's what I brought in for for you and in the blood of God. I I used that uncertainty of I don't know what tomorrow may bring, and you can definitely see the difference between the uh, first couple of scenes before shit goes down. Basically, mm-hmm. uh, you can see that. You know, I I can see the future. My I can clearly see what my life is going to bring. I'm happy. I'm on top of the world. And then like that, within 12 hours, mm. less even, I'm, I just completely crumble in on myself and I don't see any purpose mm. and I can't see like the future is uncertain for me and that no one likes to feel that. No. no. You know, no one likes to feel uncertain about their own future Mm. and I felt like that that was the most important aspect of that character to portray at that time Mm. you're listening to the cinema australia podcast on itunes soundcloud or at cinemaaustralia.com.au 
Um, I enjoyed everything about uh, The Blood of God. I thought it was great, uh, but I was mostly imp- impressed with uh, the screenplay, which got me thinking about something that I read from you a few months ago, Davo, and uh, and you said I wanted to write characters who were fiercely religious, but, but I wanted to make them as relatable as possible to people like me who are not religious at all. Um, yeah. con- considering your lack of religious beliefs, I- I'm wondering how extensive your research was uh, to, to depict such uh, genuine characters. I think my research, it wasn't, um, sorry, when I was researching for the film, I made the point of not to research religion mm. because that would um, just be uh, preachy. And I would just be regurgitating what I had researched. What I was wanting to research for the characters was how people cope with things. Um, because uh, I, I was first inspired by the, um, the the quote or the saying that where there's poverty, there's religion. And I thought, well, that's what I have seen in my own experience is that people who are um, in tight communities who depend on each other almost on a, on a daily basis are the ones where there's most likely to be a strong in something external to just the human heart or the human condition or, the, or or faith in general. And making these characters who had very different life experience to myself, I still wanted to feel that uh, sense of connection with them as people, mm. even though I was creating them. So I, I'm not God, but I create these characters every thought and motive. So um, it, was, it was a bit liberating to um, make characters who were designed to define me and my, my values, but who I was still going to love. So it was, it was a nice little uh, meta thing going on there. Um, but as Richard was saying, the, the, the real core of the film, it's a father-son drama. It's about um, the, the, ag- the agonies of being a parent when your child uh, rebels. It's about the guilt that a child feels when they rebel and suddenly have to go back to the parent. Like, I'm sorry, I, I, I rebelled. I'm sorry I put the, the video camera in the bathtub. Mm. And just, just the dynamic which we all face in our, our maturity of um, finding ourselves and doing what we are told not to do but that's what makes us who we are. We we learn by those quote unquote mistakes. Yes. And I think at the end, um, my biggest thing for Ewan was I, 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 as a writer, put the character through absolute living hell. But he does have an, an innocence and a, a, a solid moral compass. And it's only when the fog of what's happening to him clears, as with, as of all of us, that the realization of what I have in me as life experience, as strength, is what's going to get me through this, along with those who love and support me, mm. is what is ultimately the, the outcome. So I think that's across the board what makes a, a film of this type work is um, it isn't about religion, it's about people mm. and how they uh, interact and love each other. So, Davo, are you expecting any backlash from uh, religious communities such as the one depicted in The, in the Blood of God? Um, I've tried to be, as a writer, as a filmmaker, as fair and as non-political um, as I know how to be. Mm. When I'm writing about something which uh, I either don't know or which I had to research outside of myself to do, I like to put the focus on that which I do feel and understand and have at my heart um, as a, a storyteller, which is the interpersonal connections. But on the other hand, I would 
well, I wouldn't be the first person to ruffle up the church's feathers. No. But <laughs> uh, above all else, as um, as I have said uh, in, in in our other quotes for articles, um, we were given a bishop's permission to do this film in a church with the blessing of the of the um, Anglican Church. So there's a, a certain um, uh, moving with the tide on, on, of their part where they, they've read this film. And for those who have seen it, it's not the easiest film to sit through. It gets pretty heavy at times. It has some very heavy content. And um, I don't think it, it will ever screen in a church. But um, it, uh, for me, was bringing that, that that element of storytelling where we don't pull punches into a, um, a community of people, a, a, a parish of people who can be very um, careful, very conservative, and don't always say what they mean to say, don't always express what they mean to express. And I think this film might just bridge those two things a little bit. Mm. Um, I think it's safe that you, I think it's safe to say that uh, you're quite a fearless filmmaker, and uh, and not that it's ever the central focus of any of your films, but but you refuse to hold back when it comes to showing violence and sex and uh, and nudity in particular. Um, there's a transitional scene in the Blood of God where Ewan and his mate uh, pay prostitutes so uh, so Ewan can lose his virginity, um, and absolutely nothing about that scene is discreet. I want you to talk through your process as a director to make sure everyone on set feels safe and respected and comfortable during during such a scene. For that particular scene, um, it was the complete gamut of people. I had people on that set who've been my friends for many years. Mm. I had Richard, who is my partner, and I got a few actors who it's their first time working with me. Um, and for uh, it was one of them, it's their very first film ever. So I had this complete. Uh, range of experience and of um, of audacity. So when it came time to um, auditioning, I think was when it, it really I came to a head was um, how how do I audition for this role? How do I put the call out for this? Um, all I could really say was there might be some nudity involved, and then I kind of work with the actors to be like, okay, well this is how the thing's going to go, and um, it's it's interesting how um as my filmmaking has progressed and as i do one film after another people are a lot more trusting of me and a lot more like they can see the process that it will become um even though this set on the day it is eight hours of the same motions and the same um the, the, the same activity so, so, so to speak but when it comes to the uh, finished product they have seen or at least have been uh, given um an indication if they're not ready to see, see the finished film yet, but they know what's ahead and they stand by it with, I read the script, I believed the character and I gave it my everything. I think as a director, that's a huge gift that they give back to me where I actually take that with all the weight that they intended to have, where I now need to give them the full treatment as an actor, put themselves that much out of their comfort zone for me and my film that um, it would be a disservice for it to be anything other than um, meaningful and tasteful. Mm, mm. So that is a great little um, thing to experience with each film is uh, bringing the, the, the person in that actor out of themselves, but also making it worth their time to give me that much trust in them and their craft. Um, Richard, can you talk us through uh, shooting that scene from your point of view? Yeah, of course. Um, so 
Originally, it was actually supposed to be the the second day of filming, uh, just to you know get it all out of the way. Uh, but it unfortunately, or fortunately, have you want to see it, uh, got pushed back uh, just to the end of the very last day of shooting, uh, which I think was a blessing in disguise because it really did give us you know the 18 days of filming in total. So it gave us 17 days of bonding with all the other characters getting to know what everyone, you know, getting to know what makes them tick. So we were able to put that into into that filming of that scene. Uh, and I think definitely the trust, there was a lot of trust between the four actors. So uh, Ewan, Mitch, and the, and the two prostitutes, uh, Candy and Danny Marie, uh, there, there was a lot of trust between the four actors mm. Uh, and as well as Davo, uh, Luke, our sound, and Baby, our, our camera operator, and whoever, I forgot who else was in that room. Uh, so there was a lot of trust between us as professionals, uh, which then moved into there was trust between the characters as well, which mm-hmm. was, I think, really important because even though in the scene it is the first time that Ewan is meeting these two prostitutes and Mitch he's been with them a couple of times there is still that sense of I, Ewan is trusting this lady who he's never met to to be gentle with him and I think the naivety of, of Ewan of how he really doesn't understand how you know, sex works and how life works to a certain degree as well. She takes this in and and kind of soothes him through it. Mm. You know, you in the in the scene you've got Mitch who's had sex plenty of times with this dominatrix, Danny Marie. They're on the back of the bed straight into it and you've got, you know, Ewan and Danny Marie at the front just, you know, talking through it, being like, okay, so you know, now we undress and you see this innocence in you and, and from me going back to my first time and just seeing this like, okay, this is a young man who's easing into it very slowly, very gently, which is contrasted to the other times that you see him returning to Danny Marie. Yes. Where he's you know, going full at it, just, you know, some very interesting positions I might have had. Yes. Um, so much so that the condom breaks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that brings back in the innocence of the first time where it was like, I don't, what did I do? Was I too rough? What What does this mean? And it it's so funny. And, you know, you kind of, we did have to laugh through it a lot of it at the time when we were filming the original uh, the four of us in the one bed, not just the four of us in the one bedroom or, you know, separate beds. We were on one, on like a twin size or like even a single a single bed and it's four people. And between takes, I'm sure there are plenty of uh, you know, shots of just us laughing through it, which it brought in that charisma of, you know, even though these are four strangers effectively in the character's they were all going through it for the first time, like as a group. Um, 
it was sweet actually it, <laughs> there were so many words that I wouldn't you wouldn't think of using this describe filming that scene, but I, I would say sweet. It, it, it worked out uh, very well. It came across uh, great uh, in the actual film. Um, other than your performance, Richard, uh, the blood of God, you know, boasts many great performances from some, from some very talented actors. Was there a large audition process, Davo? Uh, audition process. Um... Or are you the kind of filmmaker who just calls in uh, favors <laughs> from friends? No, um, actually, uh, for, for uh, the Blood of God, it was like my, with, with my first film. The majority of the cast were new people, mm. um, which was good because I think um, the lady who plays Candy has played my mother for two different films, almost back to back, which was in itself a nice um, <laughs> little moment for us just to be like, okay, this is my my, my new role. Thanks, David. Um, but I. I, I I am seeing myself a bit of a recycling of actors and there's only so much which you can do with that relationship when um, you look at their credits and it's always the same films as your own. So while giving them space to branch out and do their own thing, it gave me a chance to uh, work with actors who didn't know me quite so well and who were um, reading these scenes off the page and really uh, having to come to grips with uh, the roles that they had t- taken on. Mm. So when I was auditioning, um, I actually allowed the actors to see my previous films. So they got a bit of an understanding of um, of the, the finished product and as far as quality of the writing and of the filmmaking goes, um, an idea of the content. So um, they've, they've seen all of me and that's – I find ultimately quite a good icebreaker when there's that, that sense of, well, Dave has done it, why can't I? Um, but also they, from that point, um, also have the chance to be like, yeah, this is actually a little bit too heavy for me. I don't think I can do that. And that's also very um, uh, advised and very uh, um, fair because when I do have an actor say that they are not able to do quote unquote a Dave Hardy film, um, I don't think there's any shame in that. I think uh, there's plenty of filmmakers out there, there's plenty of uh, actors out there, and we all need to know what our boundaries are, what our um, abilities are. Mm. And it's always um, ill-advised to say, push so far beyond your comfort levels that you're out of your depth because that will show up in the finished thing. And I don't want actors to ever think twice once they've committed themselves because it just makes everyone, I don't know, it can be very messy mm. for everyone involved. And um, by the time we actually get up to the shooting phase, everyone's had their chance to uh, prepare, to uh, to get to know each other and uh, bond, if you will. So when it comes time to actually doing the scenes, it's almost like a day at work. Mm. It's um, it's uh, but. By the time you get to the set, I think everyone's really mulled over in their own mind with their family and friends and with myself and the rest of the um, people in the scene, all their concerns, all their um, uh, goals to hit. And when we wrap the scene, there's that sense of accomplishment, of uh, achievement, and that's mm. always a nice moment to hit. Nice. Um, for, for such a complex and layered film, it's very well structured and, and it never strays off track. Um, but, but it goes for two hours, which is very rare for an Australian feature film. I mean, the average running time is about uh, an hour and a half. Um, not that I think it needs it, but, but as a film's editor, did you ever consider cutting it back or did you always want to make this, this two-hour feature film? 
I think when I was writing The Blood of God, I was aiming at a 90-minute, but mm. when these things are being written, they somewhat have a life of their own. They mm. sort of decide what they want to be. Um, but then again, as a, a, as a film uh, viewer myself, I love my six-hour epics. <laughs> so um, when I, um, I think of uh, the Aussie classic uh, For the Tomb of His Natural Life, which I think is about five hours long, and I've watched that, in one sitting, and I, I, I as a as a film appreciator, can do that. Um, there are some films where ninety minutes you can just start to invest yourself, and then the credits start rolling. So um, I try not to give myself the uh, bookmarks of this film has to be ninety minutes, no more, no less. Mm. It, it it might hit that in the uh, in the editing stages, but. Um, before my film is released, I I do put it through a number of different eyes, people who are involved, people who aren't involved with the finished product, and they give their two cents worth. Mm. And so a few bits get shaved off here and there. The, 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 often it's just a few frames from a certain um, expression or it can be a whole scene can be cut out. But um, the story is quite layered. Yes. And uh, – I find if I was to chisel away certain things, I would either not give it that full richness to the plot and the characters, but I might also be doing myself a disservice as um, because of my style of filmmaking, I don't know if I'm necessarily a mainstream guy. Mm. I don't know if my audience is um, wanting me to be, to be. Mm. Um, but what I do and what I do well um, works well. So I think if I was to ever cut back on things for the sake of a, a duration, I would be um tampering with uh, a, a product yes and I don't know it's it's something which I would be uh, hesitant to say I need to make this for 19 minutes no, no question that's mm. it's a funny situation that one mm, mm. Uh, what, what's I'm curious what's the biggest uh, mental challenge for for an independent independent filmmaker working in Australia today the biggest mental challenge mm. for a filmmaker in Australia today um while I, I've heard it said that our industry isn't thriving. Mm. I think there's a, there's a lot of filmmakers in Australia, and there's a lot of us working very hard to get our products done. I think that the biggest mental problem that we have is comparing ourselves to each other, comparing mm. ourselves to what we envisage that we need to to be doing, and seeing this uh, this glass ceiling of um, the funding mm. of the 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 resources and those of us who work around those issues and might break a few rules or might call in a favor or 10 or that kind of thing, not feeling any shame in that because we all have to be resourceful. But then there are so many people who give up because they just weren't able to get Paul Mercurio on their first film mm. and they weren't able to get actors who would put themselves so out of their own comfort zones for the scene. And there's all these different variables where I think um, we as filmmakers just need to trust ourselves more and trust each other more, be kinder to each other, because we're not really competing against each other. If we if we look at it, we all have very different styles and very different abilities, and none of us are any better than anybody else. But when it becomes a um, a uh, elimination of an industry, that's when things get messy because there's plenty to go around, and mm. there's and there's m quite more than each of us need it's just um the 
the community could be a little bit less mentally taxing, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And Richard, what about yourself as an actor? Uh, what would you uh, What would you say is the biggest mental challenge for for an actor working today? Uh, probably a similar a similar sort of thing, just from the actor's point of view. Um, both in in theatre and but uh, more so in film, there there always seem to be an abundance of actors all looking for work, but not an abundance of, of roles and mm. When you look at it, it's like, well, no, I'm sure if you actually took the time to look in for, you know, a role, there are roles out there for every actor, but there isn't the communication between the actors and and the directors and the casting directors and within the industry itself. That there, Because there isn't that communication, you don't know about a lot of the roles. Mm. Um which then puts in that mentality of, oh, well, there's no roles in Australia, so all of our actors and even our crew are going international or, you know, to uh, somewhere else in Australia to find the work. And it's like, well, there is actually work in Sydney if you look for it, but both the actors aren't asking, you know, asking old directors, you know, do you have any roles for me coming up or do you know of any directors that are casting? But then the directors, I feel a lot of them aren't uh, aren't putting it out there that they're also casting mm-hmm. because a lot of the time, as David was saying with his first uh, couple of features, we were recycling actors because we we've got our own bubble of people that we work with but we're not. A lot of people aren't expanding that bubble and taking the risk in going to other people, which was what I found was great with the blood of God because I, because I was so heavily involved, much more than with Hunting for Shadows and Asylum Agreement. A lot of the cast, uh, Javen who plays uh, Boyd and uh, Kelly McRae who plays Kirsty, the romantic interest of Ewan, I'd both. I'd worked with both of those actors in other circumstances and suggested to bring them in. Mm. And I feel like if everyone just – the biggest mental issue is that we don't support each other really. Mm. Mm. We – for a number of reasons, we just need to support, you know, support each other in the industry, put other people forward if you're not, not appropriate for the role – but then also asking, asking for help as well, because mm. it is definitely a two-way street where, you know, it isn't just on the the actors to look out for the roles, but it's not just on the directors to post the roles as yes. well. Yeah. Mm. Um, I want to I want to close the interview by asking, speaking about all of this and everything that you two have just said. It it um it brings me to my next question, and and I want to close with it because I usually close by asking filmmakers uh, and actors that I interview this question. But what was the last Australian film that uh, that you both caught at the cinema, and 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 what did you think of that film? I think uh, we haven't seen an Aussie film together for a while because mm. our schedules are so different. But mm. um. Yep. The last one I saw was Hounds of Love mm. and that was a mixed blessing for me because it it was at the time that Asylum Agreement was going into festivals and Hounds of Love was winning them all. And I think had I not seen it, 
um, had I not uh, had the pleasure of going to a Q and A screening and meeting the director and being brought into the fold, I probably would have developed a certain amount of jealousy and, yes. uh, and envy because that film did so ridiculously well, mm. but it was doing so at the expense of my own film. Yeah. Um, but again, that was where the mental um, strain comes from of it's okay that um, sometimes you're ahead, sometimes you're behind, sometimes you're you're on par with your your colleagues. It's just how it goes. The, the, the point is that we both made a solid product that year. Mm. And I think that's how even the most elite people deal with it at the Oscars. You know, when they're all putting the heart and soul into these things that can take months or years to pull together, and it always goes to Meryl Streep. So it's just <laughs> that, that, that appreciation that it doesn't boil down to who gets the trophy it's it's um that everybody was in the running for it mm-hmm. and even to be um in the same room as as, as people who are achieving those those other heights is remarkable mm-hmm. so i saw hounds of love i thought it was quite similar to my style in in many ways and it was actually quite inspiring as a film um not an easy watch again but um it was restoring my faith in um Aussie filmmaking, that it's not always a biopic or a, um, a horror based on um, Americanized uh, slashing. So mm. that was very restorative for me and my sense of what Aussie filmmaking can be. Oh, fantastic. And, and Richard? Well, it's, I'm actually struggling to remember the last Australian film that I saw, um, which is... Uh, Part of the issue that I that just came up in my mind uh, from listening to you talk, a lot of the Australian market is is uh, not engorged, um, no, not sabotaged, but over overthrown with with international films, and which is why I think it's so important to get the Australian films out there. And I'm just googling like the most recent Australian films, and I don't actually remember if I've seen any of these, <laughs> um, which is really sad, actually. Um, yeah, I don't actually remember what the last Australian film that I saw, which is really bad, and I despise that this is on on recorded. But I, I think it just it's indicative of the time that we're in at the moment, where Australian films aren't getting as much coverage and media attention as as international films. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard, if it makes you feel any better, almost 90% of the people that I ask that question to answer exactly how you've answered. So, uh, yeah, don't feel too bad about it. And, Davo, good on you for seeing, uh, so, you know, keeping up with the Australian films. If I didn't, I would be doing myself a disservice. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, when you meet uh, people in the in the hallways, it's like, like, hey, you're that director. It's like, you're the, the, the the director, and it helps to know the other person's product because mm. we are all in the same industry, and um, it can be very embarrassing if it's you know the face but not the uh, the work, mm. and um, you won't always get a second look in after that. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, well, it's been very great uh, to talk to you both, and uh, congratulations on such a terrific film. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on both iTunes and SoundCloud. 
For all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews, you can visit www.cinemaaustralia.com.au. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube at Cinema Australia. 